as a speech therapist, how do you justify your services to the payer? That's what we're talking about today on The Working Therapist. Welcome to The Working Therapist, a podcast designed to help you grow in your therapy practice. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. Now here are your hosts, Hayden Bolick and Kirsty Miles. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of The Working Therapist. So today we're talking about medical necessity for the speech therapist. Now I know that may sound boring to start off the thing with, but as a speech therapist working in private practice, sometimes I don't know that the words medical necessity is something that we use as a regular part of our vocabulary as a speech therapist. You hear it a lot for physical therapists. They talk about it a lot and about to ameliorate the problem, right? And as for occupational therapists, we hear them talk about medical necessity a lot. And, and the definition for OT and PT for medical necessity is how the therapist will ameliorate the problem, make it better. That's not the words they use for speech therapist, but the same rule still applies for speech therapist, you know? So we have to, as a speech therapist, you have to be able to justify the services that you're prescribing to the insurance company. So you're working in a private practice, you're working at a nursing home, you're working at a hospital, it doesn't really matter where you're working, you still have to justify the need for your services to the insurance company, to the school, to the whoever's paying the bill. You have to justify it, right? So then that's really, if you boil it all down, medical necessity. But it's just not something that speech therapists talk about. For physical therapists, is that that was just part of your regular training, right? Well, I mean, PT and OT, PT a little bit more often, but we have to write a lot of letters of medical necessity. Mm -hmm. So if we want to get equipment, orthotics, it's a part of our everyday, every week practice. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's very normal. Well, and for the speech therapist at PDT, it's very normal because we use this word from day one. But I think it's just not something that speech therapists frame it in terms of medical necessity. You know, I don't think that's the way they frame it, but that really is what it is. And you do write letters of medical necessity. A speech therapist does it, but physical therapists call it that for equipment, wheelchairs, right. orthotics, all that. OT that's does the, the name of the document. Right. For a speech therapist, we do letters of medical necessity when we write the need for uh, augmentative communication device. It's mm -hmm. a letter of medical necessity. It's the same thing we just don't call it that so in today's podcast what I want to do is reframe so when you're writing the eval think about writing the eval in terms of how to justify the need for services which is writing and explaining medical necessity what is the medical necessity for the need for speech and language or feeding or voice or fluency therapy and you said you know this isn't really a fun topic but it's also super important because Ultimately, like you said, whoever's paying the bill, whether it be insurance or the school or, I mean, if you don't do it or you don't do it correctly, then, I mean, you're doing it pro bono and I'm sure you want to get a paycheck at well, the end we, of the day. Yeah. And so, well, we say this all the time. You can be the best therapist since sliced bread. You can be the best medical practitioner out there since sliced bread. Like literally they can be like high-fiving you in the streets at, at Food Line and like you are, woo, you are number one. But if you're not going to get paid for it, you're not doing it very long. Right? You have to be able to do the paperwork. And so to get paid for it is where the justified medical necessity. And that's what it is. So we have a couple stories about that before we get started. So one, well, you tell your insurance story first. Yeah. <laughs> this happened a long time ago. And you got to remember in North Carolina too, like there was a period of time where we didn't need prior auth prior authorization from from a major insurance carrier yeah, yeah they yeah. just were like nope we don't do that don't anymore worry about it yeah that was like the greatest day ever I know. yeah but but it didn't last long but nope, still it but yeah. came back and <laughs> yeah. when it did yeah you know so uh when it did come back i had written uh, up an avowal for an infant and the goals were such that 
insurance came back and pushed back and thought one of the additional information questions that they stated was these goals are not age appropriate for this child and my response to that question which didn't sound like a question to me I just put yes they are <laughs> and left it alone <laughs> because I was like you didn't ask me a question <laughs> It was just a statement. <laughs> <laughs> so my response was, yes, they are. And That's pretty funny. Um, I got authorization. <laughs> <laughs> they like, I'm not messing with this chick. I don't know. She seems, she seems like a problem. Um, um, but to me, th- it just makes me laugh because I know I've come a long way in answering it. I enjoy answering them when they come back. Like, I, I don't know. I find it fun in some weird way to fight for equipment, power Mm -hmm. mobility, wheelchairs for kids. A lot of times the vendors we use, they'll call me and, you know, hey, Kirstie, this is going to be the third denial. Will you write up something? And Mm -hmm. I I do. I enjoy it because it means that that child is going to get what they need. And if we are recommending it, then we feel strongly about the need for it. So I'm like, well, you can't just stop. You got to go all the way. Right. So I I find a lot of joy in writing back to the insurance company and (laughs) stating my argument. Well, you're (laughs) you're fighting your case and and you're problem solving. And those are things that therapists do, right? Mm -hmm. All the time. So I had a therapist one time when, uh, this has been a while ago, and she said to me, oh my gosh, well, when the parents are in the room, it kind of makes me nervous because they're watching what I'm doing, which yes, as a new therapist, it can make you nervous right it can and and, it, and you can feel like oh gosh everybody's watching me right you got to get over that hump that, that's normal you just have to do it that's the only way you get past it but she said they're watching me because they want me to explain how I'm helping their child get better and I was like yeah that's kind of your job <laughs> so if you think about I said yeah that is that's what your job is you are going to have to explain to them how you're going to help their child get better and they're going to watch you and that kind of thing so there's two things going on in there one she was nervous about them watching her again normal get past it Two, she was realizing, I got to be able to justify the need for these services and how I'm going to help this person get better, which is ameliorate the problem, right? That's what she was saying. Like, wow, I have to do that? I'm like, yes, yes, you do have to do that. So that's what we're really talking about today. How does the speech therapist write it up? How do you write up medical necessity? What has to be in there? I'm getting ready to give you the cheat sheet, and then we're going to talk about it. So for the speech therapist, what components have to be in there to write medical necessity so that you can justify services? So the first thing is we have a lot of tests we give, a lot of standardized test assessments, and the insurance company want them, the schools want them more so than PT and OT or standardized assessments. If I cannot do a standardized test, I'm scrapping it. I'm with you also. <laughs> But except speech doesn't have that. We don't have that option a lot. Insurance companies expect us to have a standardized assessment. And that standardized assessment in uh, pretty much all of them, you're going to get a standard score. The standard score is the key thing in a standardized assessment. Not the age equivalence, but the standard score. Because the standard score compares that child to like peers at that age over the cross of a very large population because when they standardize an assessment, that's part of the process of getting a test standardized. And so the standard score is key. So there's three levels. At the end of the assessment, the speech therapist looks at the standard score to figure out if they're normal, within normal range, if they're mildly delayed, moderately delayed, delayed or severely delayed. Now, a lot of times you have to be able to put that child in one of those three categories, mild, moderate, or severe. And so to do that, a lot of it comes down to the standard score. Not everything though. Some things come into the standard score. That's another podcast for another day. How do you determine if they're mild, moderate, or severe? But anyway, first off, which one are they? So the standard score, if they're one standard deviation below the norm to 1.5 standard deviations below the norm, that's mild. 
If you're 1.5 to two standard deviations below the norm, then you're moderate, moderately delayed. If you're two standard deviations below the norm, then you're severely delayed, right? So that's your first thing. Look at the standard score. But now with the standard score, that's only a standardized assessment. And if you've listened to any of these other podcasts, you know how I feel about a standardized assessment. It's just a moment in time. It's just a test score. You as a therapist have to make sense of that bad boy, right? So the first thing you look at is mild, moderate, severe. So you take that test score and then you add your clinical assessment into it. Do you agree with that level of mild, moderate, severe, or are you thinking something different? Did the child come out mild, but really the quality of what they did was bad and so they're really severe? Or are they mild in language, but severe in speech? If they're mild in language, but severe in speech, they're severe. The lowest one is going to dictate what your level of frequency is. So you have to decide which one they are. So you take your standard score, and we'll say it again, with your clinical assessment, what you know to be true about language development and the quality of what they're doing. I mean, some kids who get like an 80 on a standardized assessment, it's a pretty good score. It's just mildly delayed. But the quality of what they did is the ever-loving pits. You know, like on the PLS-5, it's a basically a test that's given for a lot of kids, zero to six or seven. Anyway, the child at birth to three can get a pretty high score on that test, but the quality, they don't have to do a lot of quality. Quantity, do they have five words? Can they say five single words? Can they say 10 single words? Can they name a few pictures? Can they name a few objects? If you can do that, you get really high, but the quality of what you did is pretty much the pits, you know? So if you're just imitating five words, you get credit on the PLS, but the quality of what you're doing is terrible. So a lot of times you can justify a lower score or a lower level of severity for this child getting services, even though the standard score doesn't support that. Does that kind of make sense? It does, because, I mean, if you're talking about quality, like you're not taking into account how long it took you to administer that test or how many, you know, like that we had to take a break and then come back to it Mm -hmm. because they couldn't engage for more than five minutes at a time. So we had to clump and cluster the test test doesn't account for that. No. So say you've got a child who's great with identifying pictures all day long. I see kids that can identify pictures all day long, identify objects all day long. But when they request for something, they fall apart. They have no way to request. So they can name some things. Um, It doesn't really happen quite that bluntly, as black and white as I'm talking about now. But they're crying for what they want. They're whining for what they want. They may just go and grab what they want. They don't use any words. But If you ask them, what's this, what's this, what's this, they can name a bunch of stuff. Or they can identify a bunch of stuff, you know, potentially. Or they can say, like, mama, daddy, or a word approximation for mama, daddy, baba, ball, shoe. But, you know, their speech sounds are not that great, and they can't request. I've seen kids that can identify and, like, choose between two, which one's the ball, and they know ball, so they can point. But their engagement with you? Mm -mm. Terrible, yeah. No, and they're, so they're pragmatics and they're social and that part of language for them is just not very good. So basically you're trying to figure out if they're mild, moderate, or severe. That's the first thing for medical necessity. You got to determine that. But that is determined not just by a standard score, but by a standard score with your clinical assessment. And really your clinical assessment is over the standard score, kind of like umbrella over it. So it makes sense of the standardized assessment. Don't let the standardized assessment dictate the level of severity. It's just a score. 
put your clinical assessment, what you know to be true and accurate about language development, speech development, and social development, and everything else, put that and interpret the test results. So that's the first thing. Writing medical necessity, you got to write if they're mild, mild, severe. And then two, you have to determine how you got that level of severity, which is what I was just talking about. You have to say, I got this level of severity from this test score or from this clinical assessment. That's where you write how you got what you got, if they're mild, moderate, or severe. And again, like I said, you just don't want the test to determine it. You need to put what you understand in there. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is how do the level of severity impact their functional performance? And for a speech therapist, you got two things here. You got their social skills and academics. If you're listening and you're thinking, okay, with three-year-old, what's their academics? For three and two-year-olds and one-year-olds, there are the academics and social sort of mush all together. But they still have academics. You know, can they follow one-step direction for a three-year-old? Can they name objects? Can they identify objects? Can they play with a toy for two to three minutes? Can they use two-word phrases or three-word phrases? How do they request for toys? Do they interact with people? You know, all of that is a academic performance because, yeah, like, what can they do? Academic performance is like their development, right? I'm just calling it academic performance. But social, a lot of times for those little people, it's hard to sort of tweeze out social and what they know because it's all mushed in there together for the little, little people, right? It's easier when they get older. You can look at pragmatics and social skills and then language skills and academics because they're older and it starts to separate and there's more of this required of them. But for little people, they only have to do a certain amount. So all kind of is together. But basically, so how does the level of severity impact their functional performance? That's what you write. And that's how you determine medical necessity. So for example, a child can't request, they cry for everything they want, or they just go and get it and bring it to you. Or I um, saw a little boy this week, when he doesn't get what he wants, he looks at me and he starts to try to pinch me, or he goes, ah, well, that's how he talks. He pinches me and he goes, ah, at me because I'm not doing what he wants, right? That's how he talks. So I wish that worked. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, well, actually, for him, it's worked pretty well now for about two and a half years. <laughs> but when he goes, ah, like that, people start doing things. I've noticed myself, like, wait, what does he want? Let's get it to him right quick. And then when he started pinching me, I mean, it didn't really hurt or anything, so I didn't react to that one. But it could have, right? I was going to start doing stuff. It had power. So I was like, all right, get this kid something. If a child can't request and they can't use words, then that's what I write about in terms of why they need me. So I figure out from the level of severity and from my clinical assessment, if they're mild, moderate, severe, and then I write, how does that affect their life performance and various things they do? And that's how I justify medical necessity. So basically, just to review, then this is how you write up or justify medical necessity for a speech therapist. First, you got to figure out, is this child mild, moderate, or severe? Second, then you put that with your clinical assessment and determine, does the test score support the level of mild, moderate, severe? Your clinical assessment is basically going to make sense of that standard score, and then you're going to determine if you agree with it or not, and then you're going to decide, okay, is this child mild, moderate, or severe based on the test score and your clinical assessment? And then you're going to write, how does that impact functional performance, which for us as a speech therapist is the academic performance and social. Now, I'm not right now talking about voice and fluency because voice and fluency have a few other components they can take on, but how does it impact the functional performance in their life? That's a good way to say it. It encompasses the voice, the fluency, and the feeding and social skills. And that determines what do you work on and how do you make the biggest impact? That's going to also justify how you write your goals and how you write your home program.
really the plan of care. So that's really medical necessity for a speech therapist in a nutshell. So for example, the little boy that I was talking about, he uses grunting like when he doesn't get what he wants and he also tries to pinch you. He looks at you and eye contact. He does great combinational play skills. So when you give him a standardized assessment, he scores at about a 50 because he's really not naming pictures. He's not really following directions. He doesn't answer yes, no questions. He doesn't answer what questions. He's about two and a half. He's behind and he doesn't really engage too much with you. So he scores very low on the standardized assessment severe. So I could write a goal where he would answer yes, no questions. I could write a goal where he would identify body parts. I could write a goal where he would identify and name objects. But is all that the main thing to work on? No. The main thing to work on is he can't request. He can't engage with me with play. He can't tell me I want something. He instead grunts at me and pinches something. So the biggest impact, the standard score supports the level of severity, which is severe because he's at a 50. Also, my clinical assessment supports that standard score because I've determined he's very behind. But his functional performance, what am I going to work on? I'm going to work on getting him to use single words, getting him to request either gesture, pecs, try to word shaping, to get him to do more speech sounds, also work on his play skills, interact with me socially, and start in the context of play, work on his better understanding of nouns, verbs, and that kind of thing. But that's really what I need to work on. So that's how I'm going to justify medical necessity because a two and a half year old needs to be able to ask for something. So that's medical necessity for a speech therapist in a nutshell. Boom, boom, right? Just those three things. I hope that was helpful information for you to use throughout your practice in the schools where they don't call it medical necessity, but you do have to justify services. And a lot of times you're tied to an IEP and how you have to write that up based on the school and the IEP. But there's always that contingency in there for how does it affect their academic performance in the school. So for example, if a child isn't able to produce an R, you know, he may not score that low on the Goldman Fristo. His language scores may be fine, but can he be understood by others? He may not be able to be. I've interviewed a couple of adults in my life in the past 23 years, and some of those adults didn't have their R, and their level of intelligibility was pretty terrible. So that affects their academic performance, because if they can't be understood by others, and if their speech sound significantly less mature than their cognitive level, that affects their academic performance. And so that justifies the need for services. And I can write up the IEP based on that, even though my test scores don't support it. And socially, absolutely. If you can't get up in front of the class and give a book report, do they do that anymore? Book reports? I'm not sure. But they definitely do college interviews. I mean, you could sound without, without having an R, you can sound significantly more immature than what your cognitive level is. And that will impact you socially, academically, everything. Same thing can happen for a lisp. That doesn't make you sound too immature. It's just not so clear. So think about, in terms of when you're writing your reports, think of it that way. And I hope that helps. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. For more information or to contact us, visit us online at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com.